Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Bernadette Peters, and you're listening to The Standard Theatre Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. I'm Nick Curtis, Chief Theatre Critic. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Coming up on today's show. We'll be reviewing The Hills of California. And it's on at the Harold Pinter Theatre. For our second review, it's Metamorphosis of the Lyric Hammersmith. I cannot make anyone know what is happening inside of me. I cannot make it clear, even to myself. Yes, that's the one by Franz Kafka, adapted by Lem Sisse and directed by Scott Graham. Joining us later on is none other than Desperate Housewives and Transamerica star Felicity Huffman, woohoo, who's going to be telling us about here at the Park Theatre. I've played a lot of characters that people don't like. Is it fun? No. Do I want to do, like, Oklahoma, (laughs) wear pretty dresses and have people go, yay? Yes, but that doesn't seem to be the career path I'm on. Welcome back to another episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Make sure you're following us and hit download so you don't miss us every week when a new episode lands. And tell us what you think of the show and what you'd like to hear us talk about. Get in touch via our email, which is theatrepod at standard.co.uk. Right, let's get into our pick of the news this week. And if I'm sounding slightly remote this week, it's because I'm dialing in down the line because I'm about to jump on a plane to Jordan. So but, um, <laughs> exciting. We're not. Very no, exciting. We are not. <laughs> but not before we marvel at the fact that Tom Holland is going to appear in Romeo and Juliet in the West End for um, the wonderful Jamie Lloyd. Oh, that's um, going to be great, isn't I mean, it? This yeah. is the West End keeps getting bigger and bigger names. I know. It it's does. Mostly, um, by Je- mostly because of Jamie Lloyd, well, actually. But not, <laughs> but not, just, not just because there's another name. Just before we go into Tom Holland, obviously eyebrows were raised with the news that supermodel Cara Delevingne is going to play Sally Bowles in Cabaret. I know. I just had yeah. a conversation with someone in the kitchen at the office uh, who was saying to me, Nancy, can Cara Delevingne sing? I mean, you know, I don't know where I'm going. I have no idea. <laughs> no but, idea. But, but I mean, I think she could act. Like, I think she's a good actor. Mm-hmm. I've seen her in a I few agree. things she's, on TV. Yeah, she's a good film actress, I think, definitely. I don't think she's ever done stage stuff before. I'm not sure if Tom Holland has actually done stage stuff since he was at um, college. I interviewed Tom Holland when he was 14 years old, when he appeared in a film called The Impossible with Naomi Watts. 
and Ewan McGregor about um, a family smashed apart by a tsunami. And he was an extraordinarily self-possessed in person and, and very assured on screen then. But I, I, you know, I don't know if he's done stage stuff, but I would you know, bet even money on his Romeo being pretty excited. And my God, it's going to sell tickets. Yeah. I mean, the, the odd thing about Delevingne going into playing Sally Bowles is the thing about Sally Bowles is she shouldn't actually really be able to sing this very well. This is exactly what I was yeah. saying. She's not meant to be a particularly good singer. But I'm, I'm yeah. not sure that nuance may be lost on an audience. If she comes out and can't hold a note, they might be a bit surprised. <laughs> I think that's true. It's a, weird, it's a weird sort of, she's Schrodinger's singer. You know, she yeah. has to be simultaneously good and bad. But I'd also, the, like, the, the one thing I would be concerned about, and I'm sure that, you know, on this production, they would be very careful about stuff like this. Eight shows a week in a singing role like that is a hell of a lot for a mm. voice. Like she'll have to do, A, an awful lot of training, and B, look after it. It's going to be really demanding. There was another big announcement of a West End uh, arrival in the form of Faulty Towers, which is heading (laughs) to the West End uh, in a couple of months' time, adapted by John Cleese. Obviously, uh, off the success of the Only Fools and Horses stage show, uh, clearly there's a thought, well, if that can work, why can't this? I guess probably also more inspired by Spamalot, which I think Eric Idle pressed ahead with, I think I'm right in saying to the general indifference of the rest of the Monty Python crew, uh, which then proved to be a great sort of money spinner. Um, yeah. You know, Cleese has been fairly uh, frank about needing to earn money to pay various um, alimony yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, uh, outgoings over the years, hasn't he? And uh, we can possibly see this through the lens of that as well, can't we? I mean. Yeah, so I mean, maybe we should say it's a surprise it has taken so long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had some great emails this week, so thank you to our listeners for that. Basically about shows to go to on Valentine's Day, but actually most mm. of the focus seems to have been on what not to see. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, Moulin Rouge, for example, famous, famous total tragedy. Uh, Magic yes. Mike, can only make you feel inadequate. Mm. Um, and also Tina. Essentially the message seems to be avoid the Hindu at all costs. Well, uh, yeah. that's, it's, it's funny you say that. Um, a few years ago I spoke to a theatre owner, and this is outside of London, but he told me that there was one show that he would never, ever program again in his theatre, which was Dirty Dancing. And the reason right. for that, because obviously, I mean, it's not running in London at the moment, but I imagine mm. people would have thought of that as well as a potential Valentine's Day um, show. But uh, apparently when the Patrick Swayze character, Johnny, is that right? So, like that. So, so long since I've seen it. But he used to, in this staging, come up through the middle of the aisle. So through the auditorium and onto the stage. Oh, my God. But apparently he was groped so much by the Hindus that they had to have him coming in from the wings instead. And apparently the behavior of the audience was so bad that this theater owner said, never again. Oh, my God, that's outrageous. (laughs) Nick Curtis, I just wanted to say, like, we were trying to work out, is there anything romantic in the West End? I can't think of anything. Not from Mamma Mia. Yeah, (laughs) nothing really... Nothing really leaps out at me. There aren't any any great love stories that I can think of. No. I mean, I have to say, I, I took my wife to the theatre on our first date because <laughs> I'm a cheap bastard. Um, <laughs> my reasoning being that um, if it, you know if we if we didn't get on, we'd have something to talk about, and we'd also have something to look at for two hours before having to sort of talk to one another over dinner. And that was to see David Harrow's Knives in Hens at the Bush Theatre. Later arrived at the Donmar by Yale Farber, mm. but uh, quite a sort of disconcertingly sexy play to see on your first date. But it seems to have done the trick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, don't go and see Plaza Suite because that won't make you feel any better about marriage. And, and it'll romance. make it'll make you feel poorer. <laughs> you will make you feel a lot poorer. It's absolutely true. I think it's time for our first review. This is Jez Butterworth's Hills of California.
So this was another team outing. We were all there on Tuesday night. So, um, Nick, first thoughts? Well, I thought this was uh, strange but utterly enthralling, really. It's a female-centred family saga that unfolds in a former guest house in Blackpool in 1958, when it is a guest house, and then in 1976, when it's morphed into a family home where the mother of four daughters is dying slowly and agonisingly upstairs of stomach cancer. With the flashbacks to 1958, you learn that she drilled her four daughters to be a sort of Andrew's sister's tribute act with the hope that they would get on stage at the local Blackpool variety nights and then thence, you know, sort of make it to the London Palladium and, and superstardom probably in the States. Basically hoping that they will escape the life that she has had as a single mom raising four girls in this rather down at heel guest house in rather down at heel Blackpool. Mm. Um, 1976 was, of course, the, the year of the great hot summer across the UK. So... The house is a pressure cooker in lots of different ways. Yes. Uh, wouldn't you agree? What did, what did you guys think? You know what? I was I was never bored ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think enthralling is a good word. Actually, mm. I I found it. I mean, it's three hours long. It's got a, a you know a, a light plaza suite. It's got an interval and a and a pause. Well, like um, Ferryman as well. Yeah. Oh, yes, there's a his previous uh, show that yeah. had a pause. And that was really long. And this, I didn't know why they had a pause, I've got to say. I don't really understand that either. Uh, Actually, it might be something to do with costume. I think it's to do with costume for that one character who Mm. comes in right at the end. Mm. I think it's probably to do with that. Yeah, I found it really interesting. You know, it's got a layer of it, which is about the death of dreams and also Mm. the sort of destructive power of dreams. If you put too much of your hope into them... And, you know, and expect them to kind of take you out of, of, of what you have. Yeah. I don't think we're kind of spoiling it if we, you know, they, they do not become the Andrew sisters. <laughs> like, you know, that is not a thing. This is the first of Jez Butterworth's plays that's been led by women in such a kind of um, key way. And mm. I think he writes women very nicely. He really yeah. does. It's interesting. I, I think this could be considered as a sort of part of a trilogy with... Jerusalem, his most famous play, and The Ferryman, which is arguably his best play. Now this, you can see him sort of moving across the gender spectrum, getting in touch with his female side more and more over the years, because when he started out with Mojo, the plays were exclusively male. And yeah, also that's a young man's play, without yeah. a doubt. I mean, it's a bloody good play, but it's a, it's a really young man's great, play. Yeah. This has a connection to Mojo, I think, in that it is about um, 1950s dreams of pop stardom and the mm. malign forces that prey on those. It's it's fascinating. I, I think you know the three plays I mentioned, um, Ferryman, Jerusalem, and this. They're vastly thematically and tonally different, but mm. there's something about the sort of detail and texture of human experience in them that I think links them. And family and is, life in a way as well. It really sort of yeah. gets to grips with the sort of the secrets we hold and the lies we tell ourselves mm. and the yeah. perspectives. And you know, everyone is looking at kind of the same. Uh, history, but very, very differently. Mm. And it's interesting to me, Nick, Nancy hasn't seen the play, but it, it's a quirk of fate that it's come out at, a, at the same time as Till the Stars Come Down, because obviously yeah. there are sisters yes, at I the core of that. that. Um, yes. Three sisters there. This is four sisters, although one of them's off stage a lot, so it's, it's largely three sisters for, for a lot of the play. Mm. Um, yeah. And some of those themes of, you know, how families hold themselves together or tear themselves apart are resonant, I think. They're sort of quite good companion pieces. Yeah. There's a reason why there aren't any romances in the West End at the moment. is because actually, unless they're a disaster, they don't make very good stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least not on stage. It's still interesting to me how many post-COVID plays we are seeing 
which are about women trapped in a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we've had House of Bernardo Alba, yes. we've had the one that was at the National. Uh, Dixon and Daughters. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the lead actress here is Laura Donnelly, who is yeah. also Jess Butterworth's partner. They have mm. two young children, I imagine, during COVID. They were stuck, stuck in a house. Yeah. So maybe he did firsthand, you know, discover what that was really like. Well, let, but, let's, um, let's talk about some of these performances because the performances mm. are, I think, across the, the board superb. But yeah. starting with yeah. um, Laura Donnelly, she plays the mother as you flash back into the scenes when, when the, the daughters are all quite young, 15 and, and down. And she's an amazing sort of mix. She's imperious at times, but fragile at other times. Um, there's an amazing moment when the four sisters all perform for a producer. And I actually found myself watching her. Mm. I was watching her watching them. And there was this extraordinary sort of buttoned up. She had the pride, but also the fear that it wasn't going to work and the sort of making sure they were all in exactly in place. It's a really masterful and understated performance. I mean, she goes big at other times, but I, I think that's a performance with everything. Yeah, she was really, really superb, I thought. Yeah, she appears later as well. And I think the change in, in the actress at that point, I don't want to give anything away, yeah. is really exceptional. Yeah. I think uh, the character is, is very much the character of Veronica the mother is mm. very much a woman who's keeping everything on an incredibly tight leash, including mm. her own sort of sensuality and sexuality and her own hopes. Because if she lets go, then chaos will lose. Well, yeah, it's you know it's interesting. I was thinking about it later. There's a moment when they find out that um, this is in the in the 58 uh, sections where they find out that one of their performances has been cancelled, and it's not made explicit. But you realise, I think, thinking about it later, that the reason that it has been cancelled is probably because of her reputation as a single mm. mother, and actually not because of the performance of the girls, which is what they, they say, that it's a, a bit too lively for the sort of church hall or whatever. They sort of drop in little little hints about the fact that, you know, perhaps she was unmarried, perhaps mm. dad wasn't ne- necessarily the same person, mm. it, you know, in, in, in all cases. But it's quite subtle, and it was only later when I thought about it I mm. realised that those microaggressions, if mm. you like, for a single mother in the 1950s, are yeah. very, um, very subtly and nicely sort of threaded yes. throughout the show. Yeah, I mean, Donnelly is, is superb, but I think I agree with you, Nick, that this is a really, really strong ensemble cast. Mm. I think they thought the younger versions of the sisters, the young actors playing the, the teenage versions of the sisters, were extraordinary. I agree with you, actually, about the young performers, the girls who play the women as girls. The one thing I would say, though, is that I didn't necessarily get the connection between the characters, the personalities of the young girls and the older women. I don't think this was to do with the acting. I think this was more to do with the writing, possibly the direction. Oh, which you, one was which, You weren't which, sure basically. which was which, yeah. of, particularly of two of them. I still am not entirely sure which mm. of those two was Ruby and um, Jill. That is one thing that I think is... Is a bit because you're you're then thinking about like hang on a minute which which yeah, which yeah, kid yeah. is that and just to, as an aside to play into the uh, the the lies that everyone tells themselves and uh, is uh, that the nurse points out that she's looked out every single window and the guest house which is called the sea view and there is not a sea view from any single one of them <laughs> so uh, yeah it's true and all the rooms are named after American states in a sort of romantic way but, mm. uh, but which also sort of hints that the American dream that they're all yearning for is possibly a bit of a chimera or a bit of a sham. 
Look, I really, I really liked it. I did really like yeah. it. It is not electric. It is not no, like it's, you don't it's get that slow. thing that you got with Jerusalem and you got with um, the ferryman. I know Nick Clark, you were a little bit well, less effusive about those than necessarily everybody. One, there was a lot of hype. Let's face it, mm. but there was a sort of free song with them both, and you don't so much get that here. It feels very written. I remember mm-hmm. overhearing a couple of actors on the tube. I don't know who they were, but you know when you can tell. Mm-hmm. A couple of actors on the tube being very scathing about The Ferryman when it was on in the West End. Uh, and it was also directed by Sam Mendes. And the woman was very, very pleased with this phrase that she'd come mm-hmm. up with. She kept saying it. It stinks of direction. It stinks <laughs> of direction. <laughs> this reeks of writing, mm. I think. I like, and now yeah. that works in a way, in a sense, in the, in the sort of performative way that the characters operate like particularly Laura Donnelly's character Veronica Webb she's a storyteller in every fibre of her being you know she's clearly a performer like raising this this new generation of performers but overall I couldn't quite forget it I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing but it is quite no it was quite noticeable to me I think also sorry just to go back we should there's a few more performances I think we should talk about because I think the sisters (laughs) the grown-up sisters are are all great I Mm. think you know, Leanne Best as the sort of really wound tight. Lovely, you know, Best. Uh, Gloria. Yeah. She's fantastic. In she's that. such a good, like, I've only ever seen her as a supporting actress, yeah. but she's so good. And again, it just really helps the play along that these performances are brilliant. Ophelia Loverbond as this sort of confident, bold woman who, when she goes into her childhood home, sort of regresses into a childlike state. That's it's so just true. It's almost like yeah. she's a different person mm. by the second act. Yeah. And then Helena Wilson, who's who's the daughter who's sort of been left behind to look after the mother and holds mm. all those tensions and, you know, doesn't have a, uh, her own sort of family life and, and kind of regrets that, it's, it feels. Mm. And they all play that brilliantly. I think that there's quite a lot of nice doubling where you see, like, yes. quite, not nasty characters, but Brian Dick plays Jack Larkin, who is um, just like a sort of David Brent-style comedian in the 50s. Oh, yeah. And then he's doubled as Ruby's husband. Ruby's and husband, and you Dennis, just think, yeah. oh, that's quite nice because, you know, people they've seen in their childhood, maybe there were resonant, you know, factors. And the fact that Sean Dooley's Bill is making these terrible jokes, again, resonated with me with this sort of terrible Brentian character from their childhood who actually has a very dark side, it feels like, underneath, mm. the way he yeah. interacts with the mother. Mm. So, you know, talking about just Butterworth's writing, yeah, I didn't love Jerusalem as much as everyone else did, partly because I saw it right at the end of the West End run. So everyone was saying, this is the best play of the 21st century, the best play we've ever seen. And obviously, no play is going to live up to that. Mm-hmm. The Ferryman, I thought, was either far too long or not long enough and should have been split into two because I, I thought there were sort of two conflicting narratives in there and it was all wound up quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But what this play brought home to me is that I'm just happy to sit and listen to really good writing, writing mm-hmm. that isn't cliched, that takes yeah. you along with it. And, I mean, I do think he's a master of knowing when to put the plot points and where the big beats, but also seeding, seeding all of these little sort of points underneath. Who who was the father? Was it multiple fathers or was it one? Why are they lying about certain yeah. things or why is it different stories being told? And also general? not all of those things are picked up and I think that's mm. important yes. because it's just like, you know, not everything has to be resolved. Mm. Um, and I think that works quite well. I also want to make a shout out. I'm assuming it's Rob Howell, the designer. I'm not actually sure who otherwise does... Uh, I'm trying to work out who does the makeup or who designs the makeup, but it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. Leanne Best coming in as uh, um, Gloria, Gloria, uh, the older Gloria, like sweaty, really (laughs) sweaty, really hot, really red in the face. I think at one point her childhood character is said to be sweating upstairs before she's having this, this, uh, before they do this sort of audition. It's so convincing. And you kind of think at first when she comes in, she's got this like, 
performative fury. She's absolutely mm. at her wit's end. And you think for a moment she might be overdoing it. And then she says she's been nine hours in a hot car <laughs> with a meek husband and two warring teenage kids. And you're like, yeah, fair enough. This play is an event. And you, Jez yeah. Butterworth and Sam Mendes is an event. And it didn't disappoint me, I've got to say. I enjoyed it. I let it wash over me. And it, it was three hours really well spent in the theatre today. Yeah, I think that's true. The Hills of California is on until June the 15th. Let's go to the ads. In part two, it's my interview with Felicity Huffman. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Danny Mays and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the pod. Before we go to my interview with Felicity Huffman for here at the Park Theatre, I should perhaps explain some context. Felicity Huffman was convicted of mail fraud for trying to get her daughter into um, a better college and uh, fined and spent a few nights in, in prison. Her husband, William H. Macy, was not uh, prosecuted and did not, but... Um, Felicity had originally agreed to answer a couple of questions about this, but after she was monstered by another media organisation that I won't name, um, she said that she'd said all she had to say on the subject and wouldn't discuss it with me. But I think you'll agree that there's plenty still uh, of grist in our interview. Joining us on the Standard Theatre Podcast this week is Felicity Huffman. Welcome, Felicity. Thank you so much. A lot of people know you, obviously, for Desperate Housewives, yeah. Transamerica, and sundry other TV roles, but your roots are in theatre, and you are coming to the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park to do Here by Taylor Mack. Tell us a bit about the play first. Sure. It was written, I think, 2015. Uh, it's a family absurdist drama comedy about a prodigal son returning home. And uh, he comes home to find that his house and his home has had a revolution. And uh, his mother and his uh, transgender teenage sibling have done away with the old regime in the form of an abusive husband. And they're taking over. Right. Uh, the title of the play here is spelled H-I-R. This refers to the pronoun that the transgender sibling now has adopted. Is that mm -hmm. right? That's right. H-I-R <clears throat> pronounced yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. Instead of her or him. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, mean, it sounds like the play is about, you know, being transgender or the revolutionary and gender that's happening. And indeed, Taylor touches on that. But it's not really about that. Mm. Taylor Mac, I believe, describes the style it should be done in as absurd realism. Uh, yes. Which, so basically, it has to have its roots in reality, but it's taken to an absurd degree, or as situations are. I think so. Absurd. It's sort Is of in right? the in the family of Joe Orton, those sort yeah. of things. And what was the appeal of it when you were first offered it? I loved the play. Mm. 
And I love the part of Paige. I mean, that's an actor's job as we've been working on it to fall in love with the text. But what I didn't expect when I was back in the States working on it is that I also sort of, not sort of, I also fell in love with Taylor Mack, which I've never experienced before. I have a huge crush on the playwright through working on the play. One wouldn't necessarily expect to uh, see a winner of so many awards in the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park. I love the part. I mean, I'll do plays that I love anywhere. Hmm. I did a little play in Colorado this summer, so I'll sort of go anywhere. And hmm. um, I read about that. That was with your husband, wasn't it? William yeah. Tracy. Yes. And London. I mean, like New York, London is sort of the mecca of theater. So yeah. to get to come here and do a play, regardless of how small the venue is, is is a privilege. Right. Um, this is your first time on the London stage, isn't it? Although I yes. believe you trained here for a time. Is that I did right? for a Rada. very small period of time. I did. And my uh, husband did a play here at the Dunmar. Yes, indeed. How was that when you trained at Rada here? Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. I loved it. It was back in the Paleolithic period. <laughs> and I had the best time. I loved it. And they were very kind <laughs> to a chunky American who didn't know what they were doing. That's me. But... I've always loved London. I mentioned earlier your roots are in theatre. Um, I think particularly your, your first great success on Broadway was in Speed the Plough, and you did a lot of David Mamet work early on. Did you have a particular affinity with him and with his writing, do you think? You know, like most of the things in my career, I've just sort of fallen into it. I was at NYU training, and uh, a bunch of my friends said, we're going to go study with David Mamet over the summer, and I'm such a lemming. I was like, oh, I'm going to come with you. I didn't even know who he was at that point. And I trained with him for a couple of years. And then he said, I have nothing else to teach you. So why don't you start a theater company? So we started a theater company. We spent two years in Chicago. And then we moved back to New York. And, yeah. you know, Atlantic Theater Company is one of the best off-Broadway venues around. So I'm honored to be a part of that. And, yeah, I just I just did theater forever and ever. Yeah, until you didn't and started... Uh... Until I didn't, <laughs> yes. until I was like, I would like to actually buy a home. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's the inevitable question, one that I always end up asking people who start out as theater actors. Is it the, is it the fact that the screen stuff pays the bills and the, uh, the, the stage stuff feeds your soul, or is it not as simple and straightforward as that? It's a great question. Um, I find they both feed my soul. Mm-hmm. Yes, the paycheck is a whole lot better than in theater. But, uh, you know, the great thing about television is it's sort of what you have with the community of theater. It's a community. You know, you go for however long. I mean, Desperate was eight years. My husband just did a show that was 11. And it's a community. And that's one of the first things. I mean, I started going to theater camp when I was 10. And it wasn't the performance that I loved. It was the community. It's a wonderful place for the disenfranchised all get together and hang right, out. Right, I see. Uh, you mentioned Desperate Housewives just now, and I think at one point you said that that cast quite a long shadow, that it was hard for people to sort of think of you outside that role. Was that the case? Did you sort of find it hard to shift people's perceptions of you after that? And has that now abated a bit? I think that's always the case on a long-running television show. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that they pay you, because they're not just paying you for that work. They're paying you for being tattooed with that part on your forehead. Um, have I found it? I, I haven't found it that hard. I mean, you know, you sort of get the jobs you get and the ones that you don't get, I don't think they come and tell you, oh, it's because you played Lynette and people can't shake it. Sure. Um, but I've been lucky enough to do, you know, things, um, you know, when they see us with Ava DuVernay and 
several independent films and yeah, wide ranging. I don't know if anyone ever saw those, but mm. I've got to spread my wings a little bit. Absolutely. I wanted to touch on Transamerica a bit because mm. this show also deals with trans identity. It was obviously a huge, you know, uh, artistic success for you and commercial success. It was twenty, almost 20 years ago now, wasn't it? Would, yeah. would you take on a trans character now? Or? I think when things equal out and are television and our movies and our theater actually represent the population that they're for and there's equal representation, I think people will loosen up and will go, yes, actors' jobs are to play everything. Hmm. Everyone should be able to try their hand at everything. But right now, because we are in transition and we want to give room to people and voices and different identities that have not gotten access before, then I think we need to step back and make room. Sure, yeah. You mentioned doing a play last year with your husband, William. You've acted together a lot over the course of... Yeah, we have. uh, And of course, we've now, last weekend, just seen uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick appearing together on the London stage for the first time. How did you like that? I, I I mean, I think the play has not lasted well, but I think it's, you just sit there... I mean, he appeared a couple of years ago in The Starry Messenger, but it's a big deal, her coming here, and, and you can sort of feel the whole audience sitting there thinking, oh my God, it's Sarah Jessica Parker. But, <laughs> but she's extremely good. So I it's a bigger say. deal for her to come here than Matthew Broderick? I think so, just oh. because Sex in the City was so huge here, oh. you know, uh, and continues to be, I think. I, I like that the woman's a bigger deal than Absolutely, the yeah. Well, no, it's definitely the case in that. Um, is there a sort of easy shorthand? Is it is it nice to work together with, uh, with a man you've, you've lived with for over 20 years? Well, it's... It's lovely, one, because I trust him implicitly. So when he says something's working, it's working. And when he says it's not working, it's not. I mean, that's also a double-edged sword because, I mean, he's coming here for the first preview and I'm a little bit quaking in my boots. Right. Because I know when he puts his hand up to his forehead that he doesn't like what's happening. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. You've got all the tells, haven't you? Yes, you know exactly. Yes. But yes, it's lovely to work with someone who you trust implicitly and who you respect. And mm. When you work with really good people, they raise the level of your game. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So have he's you, lucky to work with me. Absolutely. <laughs> have you had any time to, to sort of rediscover London this time? Uh, I mean, I'm I've sure been, been to been here a bunch holiday, of plays. But, I mean, for me, yeah. a bunch of plays. I went to the Motive in the Queue. I went to the Homecoming. I went to Hamnet. I'm going to go to the portrait of Dorian Gray. So yes, I've been trying to go before we start performing. That is a bunch of plays. How, yeah. how has the city changed since you were here at RADA in the Paleolithic <laughs> era? I have money. <laughs> <laughs> that means I you can, can afford a bunch of plays. Uber. Jeez, I don't know. It's all a blur. I don't know how it's changed. I mean, uh, mainly I'm sure I have changed. Right. It's so different being here at 20 and now I'm 61. Good God. How do these things happen to us? I don't know. It's really shocking. Have you been able to sort of go out to restaurants and things, or has it been full-on working schedule here? It's been working. The producers of this show, David Adkin and uh, Rebecca, took me to Shiki's. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Everybody goes like, oh, Shiki's. Mm. And I think we had a Sunday roast when I first arrived, which was delicious. But I think that's, that's all proper, I've been... proper socializing yes, yourself. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> into the English lifestyle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, Shiki's, I think everybody, it's, it's the showbiz restaurant now. It's slightly overtaken the Ivy, I think, for the West Oh, End is thing. that right? It sort of feels that way to me. Everybody I speak to, particularly visiting American stars, tend to... Yeah. Shiki's I remember is the place when Bill was go. doing the play here, 
that we went to the Ivy and seeing all the wonderful. I mean, that's what's great about London. All the actors are in one place. All the, I mean, it seems like all the wonderful actors are sort of in one place. So you'd walk into the Ivy and there would be Helena Bonham Carter and there would be this person and that person. And yeah. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. So let's take it back to here. What are you hoping audiences will, will walk out of it thinking? What a great question. I hope they will walk out thinking the way forward is with kindness and understanding. Mm. Once they sort of um, get their jaws off the floor. Um, (laughs) And what I also hope is that the fun and the absurdity of the play, which is well-written by Taylor and well-directed by Stephen Kunis, will leaven the question of, you know, after the reign of terror is over, now what do you do? What do Mm. we harden ourselves into? Yes. That's what I hope. Yeah. And what do you think they'll think of Paige as a character? And what do you think of her? I don't know. I We were just running the second act the other day, and I finished, and I, I turned to Stefan and uh, to Leah, wonderful actors who were in it, and I was like, I think people are going to hate Paige. <laughs> <laughs> but if that's the purpose I'm serving, that's the purpose I'm serving. Okay. I hope they have empathy for everybody. I mean, Taylor really does well. Everyone has an understandable endorsable point of view Mm, yeah just to sort of finish up is it harder to play characters that you think the audience might hate or and do you have to find a germ of sympathy for them or or, you know identify them or find out at least where they're coming from to play them oh yes I think you always have to endorse your character always otherwise I'm not sure you can fulfill the playwright's intentions because nobody thinks they're bad yeah nobody dictators don't think they're bad I've played a lot of characters that people don't like is it fun? No. Do I want to do like Oklahoma and wear pretty <laughs> dresses and have people go, yay? Yes, but that doesn't seem to be the career path I'm on. Okay, well, we're putting it out there. If anyone wants to put on <laughs> Oklahoma with some pretty dresses, then uh, Felicity Upham will come and be in it. <laughs> That's exactly right. Terrific. Well, Felicity, thank you ever so much for joining us on thank the Standard so Theatre Podcast. And here, starring Felicity Huffman, is on until the 16th of March at the Park Theatre. Let's go to another very quick ad break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Matthew Modine, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the pod. Time for our second review. Uh, this one is Metamorphosis at the Lyric Hammersmith. I see that rather than it be between you and I, man to man, maybe your parents need to hear the truth. 
should eat. Nick Clark and I haven't seen this one yet. We're recording the podcast a little earlier than usual this week because of Nick Curtis's fancy holiday. <laughs> um, but Nick, you have seen it, so why don't you tell us about it? Well, the first thing I tell you is I wouldn't really rush to see it. <laughs> this is an adaptation of Franz Kafka's 1915 novella in which famously Gregor Samsa, a cloth salesman, wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant insect. It's adapted by the poet and OBE and all-round hero Len Sisse, but I don't think it's his finest work, and I think that's partly because it's produced by Frantic Assembly, the touring company who are in their 30th year this year. And all the work that I've seen of theirs over the last three decades has the same sort of mode of expression, which is muscular, athletic movement paired with extremely broad, shouty characterisation. And so it proved here. I do have a, um, a memory of all Frantic Assembly shows I've ever seen, people kind of like jerking their arms about. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> That's basically it. Um, which, to be fair, is, is quite a... is, is not a an unvalid way of presenting Greta Samsa and here the transformation is not done through costumes the the lead actor Philippe Pacheco does it purely physically it's a bit like watching Lon Chaney transform in the original Silent Phantom of the Opera and he has an extraordinary physical presence and an extraordinary physical strength at one point he squats upside down on the ceiling like this sort of sweaty um, 1915 Spider-Man. Um, so that in itself is impressive, but the acting style is very wearing, the repetition is very wearing, and it's also worth saying that this 76-page novella is turned into a two-hour, 20-minute play. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we could have all read the book <laughs> yeah. by then, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. And in your review, Nick, you point out that, um, you know, while the uh, transformation happens on page one of, <laughs> of, of Kafka's <laughs> novella, uh, there's a fair bit of preamble before we get to the metamorphosis. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. The amazing thing about metamorphosis is everybody, pretty much everybody knows the story. Everyone thinks of it as a really potent symbol. Nobody can agree what it's a symbol of. So people have been debating for over 100 years whether it's about capitalism, whether it's about a father complex, you know, whether it's all these sort of things. Cissé, I think, comes down quite firmly on it being primarily capitalism, partly a father complex, but mostly capitalism. So you have an hour's preamble of repetitive movement and speech where Gregor repeatedly wakes up and has to go to his oppressive job as a fabric salesman, worried about what the chief clerk is going to say to him and how he's going to be judged, brutally aware of the fact that he is supporting his um, unemployed drunken father, his mother and his adored sister Greta. But this just sort of goes on and on and on again in a fairly sort of shouty uh, fashion with one slightly interpolation which is there's a hint of a not entirely wholesome relationship between Gregor and his sister um, at one point I wonder whether they misread the word insect as incest but I think there's, a, oh, there's something that, that Cissé has inserted into this that suggests reason for uh, Gregor's outsiderdom that I think has more to do with Lem Cissé's preoccupations than it does with Kafka's hmm. I don't want to be totally negative it's not totally worthless as a production that the set design by John Bowser is extremely good. There's quite an effective soundscape by composer Stephanie Yannick and uh, sound designer Helen Skira. So you see Gregor's transformation hinted at by shadows or sort of projections cast on the back wall of this slightly scary-looking, palpating shadow uh, with odd tendrils and mandibles sticking out of it. You hear scratchings behind and above and around you in the in the theatre, and uh, the music is very sort of ominous and sort of dreadful in the in the true sense of the word. I think uh, we should probably also tell the listeners that the the, the buzzing 
that you can hear in the background of Nick is not, in fact, Gregor harassing <laughs> the critic who gave him a bad review, but um, but it is yeah. in fact his next door neighbour's drilling. Um, it is, it, yes. My neighbor's having a <laughs> yeah, it's bad when the scratchings and, followed you home, right, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Not totally worthless as a production is not, <laughs> not to me something that makes me desperate to see it. I think I might stay at home and read the book again instead. I think that's probably worth it. I mean, it's not it's not an unvalid interpretation given how open *Metamorphosis* is to interpretation. But I just feel it, it's it's laborious. It was pointed out to me before I went in that this has been seen by a large number of students. I don't know whether the book is on the curriculum, but and you just get the feeling, the rather patronising feeling, that you feel that the only way that they feel they can get students to put down their phones and pay attention is to sort of shout at them and hit them over the head with a, a hammer of emphasis. Um, and that is a fairly depressing message to really put forward to the youth of today, I think. Well, um... <laughs> Should anyone want to go and see that uh, after next review? That is until the 16th of March. Right, that's this week's episode of the Standard Theatre Podcast. Please do hit follow, leave a comment, tell your friends, and feel free to drop us a line at theatrepod.standard.co.uk. Don't forget to give our previous shows a listen. They include interviews with Ola Ince, Anais Mitchell, Jared Harris, Serene McKellen, Tuppence Middleton, and many more. Thanks to our guest this week, Felicity Huffman, and thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott. We'll be back next Sunday. See you then. Listener.